Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. You've arrived. You remembered how to get here and everything? No trouble with directions? You know, there was a little traffic, but I managed to get through it. It's tight, the space. Small spaces. That's me and my wife, Rebecca. We're on a romantic date in my tiny studio, also known as the closet in our basement. All right, so we're back. <laughs> you didn't think we were going to do this again, did you? No, I didn't. I, I, I had fun doing that last podcast. Me too. Me too. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> you just hit me in the nose. You can't get it. <laughs> now, I don't know if you remember, but Rebecca made a guest appearance in the very first episode of Chasing Life last year. And honestly, it was probably the most fun I've ever had at work. Now, with Valentine's Day just around the corner, I've been reflecting on how lucky I am to have Rebecca in my life. I don't know how I could have gotten through the past two years of the pandemic without her support. She's been my partner through thick and thin since the very beginning. How did we meet? My version of the story? Uh-huh. Uh, we had met earlier in life, but I mean, the first time we really met was at Rick's Bar and Cafe in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And what I remember, I think, of the night, and I might have some of this wrong, but I think I was there with some friends, and it was somebody's birthday. And then uh, a good friend of ours, somebody that we know in common, introduced us at the bar. So it was a good old-fashioned American love story. We met at a bar. Yeah, and we're at Rick's. So we have a mutual friend, Kaya Patel, who said to me, hey, do you remember, remember Sanjay Gupta? And I was like, oh, yeah, I remember him. And she's like, well, he's here. We should go say hi. So um, I walked over and said hi. No, no, you, you actually did. I walked over and said hello. Really? Yeah. I swear, you were playing pool, and I came over and said hi while you were playing pool. Nope, Kai kept saying you'd come over, but you didn't, so I finally came over. <laughs> I was shy. Now that was back when I was still in medical school. It's crazy to think. We've now been married for 17 years and now have three children together. Wow, that's, that's incredible. I, I think that it seems like a short amount of time. Like, you know, 17 years, and I'm like, wow, that seems like a long time. But it doesn't seem like we've been married for that long. How long does it seem? Because time moves fast when you're having fun? Yeah, like it, it's like we're having fun. So we're doing all those fun things that you do, keeping our adventures alive. Even after all these years together, Rebecca and I are still discovering new things along this journey of love. So on today's show, we're going to explore how and why we fall in love. Here's a hint. It all begins in my favorite organ of the body. Plus, one expert's top tips for unlocking true love. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. Call up your sweetheart, buy a dozen roses. It's time to start chasing life.
When you think about love, imagine it right now. What pops into your mind? Maybe it's candlelight dinners, candy, or flowers. I'm guessing most people don't think about brain chemicals and neuroimaging. But for me as a neurosurgeon, these things are part of my love language. The truth is, the emotions we think of as matters of the heart most often start in the brain. I and my colleagues actually were the first in the world to put people in brain scanners to study the brain circuitry of romantic love. And in fact, when I wrote my first academic paper on it, some of the peer reviewers said, oh, you can't study that. Love is part of the supernatural. And I began to think to myself, now, wait a minute. Anger is not part of the supernatural. Fear is not part of the supernatural. Love is probably uh, has got to do with the brain. That's Helen Fisher. She's a biological anthropologist at Indiana University's Kinsey Institute, founded by the renowned human sexuality researcher Alfred Kinsey. Fisher is also a leading expert in the field of love, and she's chief science advisor to the dating website Match.com. Using MRI scans, Fisher has done something extraordinary. She has pinpointed what parts of the brain light up when you're in love. And what we found is activity, when you're madly in love with somebody, activity in a tiny little factory near the very base of the brain called the ventral tegmental area. And that little area pumps out dopamine and gives you the elation, giddiness, euphoria, focus, craving, motivation of intense romantic love. And what's more, her research finds we humans are actually biologically hardwired to fall in love. This is not an emotion. Romantic love is a drive. It comes from the base of the brain that orchestrates drive. As a matter of fact, the little factory that becomes activated and pumps out the dopamine when you're madly in love lies right next to the factory that orchestrates thirst and hunger. Thirst and hunger keep you alive today. Romantic love drives you to form a partnership and send your DNA into tomorrow. So it's a survival mechanism, but it's a very powerful one. Fisher says there are all kinds of health benefits to finding love that you probably have never even thought about. When you are in a positive relationship, you apparently live five to seven years longer. You reduce your aging process. And it's also very good for reducing cholesterol and cortisol, the stress hormone. A good relationship is good for memory and mental agility. Love activates all these different chemicals in your brain that impact your overall well-being. As you laugh with somebody, it gives you feelings of optimism and energy and focus and motivation. As you get hugs from somebody, it drives up the attachment system and you can feel a sense of calm. A good relationship also drives up endorphins and is good for pain relief. But there's also a flip side to those feel-good chemicals. We also found activity in the basic brain region that is linked with addiction. Everything from heroin to nicotine to alcohol, uh, gambling addiction, uh, sex addiction, etc. So this basic brain region called the nucleus accumbens becomes active when you are madly in love. So it is an addiction for a good obvious reason. I mean, for millions of years... People really had to overlook an awful lot of things in order to dedicate themselves to one person and send their DNA on into tomorrow. So it's a very strong addiction. I mean, people pine for love, they live for love, they kill for love, and they die for love. 
that helps explain why heartbreak can hurt so badly. I've put 17 people who had just been rejected in love into the brain scanner. And not only do we find activity in the brain region linked with intense romantic love and deep attachment, but we found activity in three brain regions linked with a craving and addiction and pain, physical pain. These people are in pain. But here's the good news. An addiction to love doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing. It has begun to occur to me that romantic love evolved perhaps as a very good addiction, giving you the ability to leave home, leave other relationships, uh, discover new things, go new places, get new kinds of jobs, change all kinds of things in order to love somebody and have babies with them. And Fisher believes that by understanding the brain science of love, we can use that knowledge to foster better relationships. We've learned from doing our brain scanning that happy couples do three other things. They express empathy. They control their own stress and their own emotions. And they practice positive illusions. They overlook the negative and focus on the positive. Actually, when you say nice things to your partner, it boosts their immune system. It reduces cholesterol and cortisol, the stress hormone, in them, but it also does it to you. So as you say nice things to your partner, it boosts your immune system and reduces your cholesterol and cortisol. So the more we know about the brain, the more we know about neuroscience, the more we have very concrete ways of building a partnership and sustaining it. I love hearing about Helen Fisher's research. I just find it cool that we can translate these intangible feelings into neurochemicals and brain pathways. It also makes me start thinking about how we might hack into that system to find love and happiness. So coming up after the break, we're going to put all the science we just taught you into practice. We have, you know, increasing numbers of anxiety and depression and all of these things. And a lot of it has to do with our lack of boundaries. I'll sit down with a therapist for a heart-to-heart about setting healthy boundaries and how to build a love that lasts. But first, a quick favor. We have an episode coming up about pets. I have three dogs, by the way. And we want to know, how has having a pet impacted your overall health? Physical. Mental. Record a voice memo. Email it to asksanjay at cnn.com or give us a call at 470-396-0832 and leave a message. And now, back to Chasing Life. We're exploring the secret to happy relationships. It's always great to hear how others approach their relationships So we asked listeners to share their secrets for keeping love alive. We try our very best to never go to sleep mad at each other. We always make sure that we hear each other out and that we are equal in this relationship. Well, I think it's actually no secret. You just have to be honest, always, especially when it's inconvenient or even uncomfortable. We sit down and we talk something out if there's an issue, and we just enjoy one another's company more than we put pressure on going on dates. 
Personally, Rebecca and I have always looked forward to our date nights. It's a time that we just get to spend with each other. Away from our kids, who we love, but we need our time apart. Away from work, away from the rest of the world. For many years, I would have a sitter here at the house and I would just cook you some great meal and we'd sneak off to some other corner of the house and we'd just have to have time together, you know, and have that meal. Those were always fun. Those were always good times. My favorite is like, I got not a worry in the world. I know that I'm doing this great dinner with Rebecca tonight. That's all I know. I don't don't think about a thing. I'm looking forward to it, but not to worry about it. That's, you know, it's a feeling. We've also been good about just spending time together with each other, and I think that that's important because I don't think that you can continue your relationship and keep it strong if you don't do that. Anthropologist Helen Fisher, who we heard from earlier, called this pandemic the Great Reset. It's either brought couples closer together or accelerated their separation. I'm not going to lie. These past two years have been a stressful time for Rebecca and me. Covering this pandemic has possibly been the busiest I've ever been in my whole life. Other than residency, yeah. You were working, working and thinking about it. So you really didn't have (laughs) much time to think about anything. Anything besides the virus. Yeah. But how has that affected the relationship? For us, I think it ended up being a good thing. I think you were so busy, but you also were able to see that how busy everybody else was or all the things that, you know, kind of happened when you hadn't been here and in in what, what was being dealt with here. And so I think that that, you know, that that really helped and it, and it helped make us closer. Yeah, no, it's, it, it, it is a stress test, I think, you know. I, I don't think most couples ever spend that kind of time together. And uh, it's kind of like, you know, in, in, in a cardiac stress test, they make you run really hard up a hill and see how your heart behaves. Is this guy good or is he about to have a heart attack? That's kind of like what the pandemic was on relationships, you know. The relationship heart? Does this relationship heart still have a heartbeat? Exactly. Exactly. I mean, you know, does it get stronger and beat harder? I mean, the heart is interesting because it's like it's one of the things, the harder you challenge it, the harder it works. You know, it doesn't it wears and tears, but it, it can get stronger as a muscle, too. That's kind of so it's a good metaphor for this relationship stress test thing. And I think we did well. I was going to say we we managed it very well because we did those walks and we did the yoga and we did those things together, which was which was really good. But, like most of us, we're just two people trying to figure it out as we go along. And we don't have all the answers. Which is why I decided to talk to our next expert. Someone who knows more than most of us about relationships. I was at a comedy show and the comedian said, what do you do for a living? And I said, therapist. (laughs) And he said, what type? And I said, relationship. He's like, what's the key to a lasting relationship? I'm like... Uh. <laughs> <laughs> right. If you could only distill it down to one soundbite, right? That's what uh, everybody wants. Yeah, they want that soundbite. And it's so complicated because humans are complicated. That's Nedra glover Tawab. She's been practicing for 14 years now and knows a thing or two about love. The healthiest relationships is when we can feel psychologically safe to communicate to others. 
there are times in relationships where we really can't speak our minds. We really can't set a boundary because doing so would damage our relationships. Often as I'm hearing people talk about their conversations with others, I have to ask the question, did you say that or did you think that? Mm. Because so much of what we, we're displaying and saying to other people, it's our thoughts. It's not things that we actually said. So there has to be a lot of practice around, okay, I understand what you think about this situation. Now, how do you say it to this person in a way that hopefully they'll be able to understand? It seems like in relationships, that that often is a problem. People misunderstood or, or because of lack of communication, they misunderstood someone's feelings, or their intent or something like that. How do you really get at that with somebody? So often it is us assuming or expecting someone to be upset, to say no, that keeps us from actually asking questions, speaking more about what we need. I think we go into it like, let me let myself down first so I'm not hurt when this other person rejects me or denies me. I don't want to experience that pain. But really, we can't get away from what we need to feel. There is no protection against hurt. We have to deal with the discomfort of maybe not liking someone's response. Much of Nedra's work focuses on the importance of boundaries for building stronger relationships. In fact, she published a best-selling book on the subject called Set Boundaries, Find Peace. Now, Nedra defines boundaries as the physical, emotional, or even financial limits that you draw in a relationship. It's what you need to feel safe and secure and supported. Now, this may seem counterintuitive, but Nedra says creating this space from your partner can actually be a really healthy thing. I noticed that with our relationships, so many of the problems that we're having with other people are problems around our inability to be assertive, our problems around speaking up for ourselves. I think it starts really early in childhood. You know, good children are children who seem to be problem-free when really those children have learned to be quiet. And in our learning to be quiet and silencing ourselves, we have gone without asking for what we need or want. We have, you know, increasing numbers of anxiety and depression and all of these things. And a lot of it has to do with our lack of boundaries. It has a huge impact on our quality of life and our relationships. What are signs for people who are listening right now that we need a healthy boundary? How do I know that I'm somebody who falls into that category? Our feelings, frustration, resentment, anxiety in particular situations, when you feel depleted, when you feel like running away, when you want to give up on things, but you actually really want to do the things. Those can be some signs. Also, knowing that you can't keep something up long term. When we commit to things and then two weeks later, we're like, oh my gosh, I said I would do this every week. I really can't do this every week. We know when we've made a big boundary era in most cases. I think the challenge is learning how to clean those things up, 
learning how to speak about what we would like instead of what's happening is really hard because we feel like we're letting people down. We're really connected to relationships. But I see it in a clinical way of how it's really harming our mental health people on medication for boundary issues, for not being able to say, I can't do more. One of my old bosses said something to me once, and basically the gist of his message was, no is a complete sentence. I've always struggled with it, to be honest, Nedra, you know, I mean, because I feel, I don't know, like I should explain a little bit. I can't do it because... But his point was, you don't have to explain. You, you're, you're entitled to just not do it. <laughs> what, do you, what do you think? In most instances, no is a complete sentence. And really, when you're not comfortable setting boundaries, no is the best thing to say without saying anything else. Because if you say no and give a reason, people are able to talk you out of your no because you've had such a hard time saying it. (laughs) So if you're not very good at setting boundaries, saying more can really get you right back to that yes that you don't want to have. So I always suggest just starting with the no. And once you practice a little bit and you feel more comfortable and secure in saying no, then you can start to give people explanations. And what happens then if the boundary is crossed after you've been pretty pretty clear? We have to repeat ourselves. And we have to do that if we want to stay in a relationship with people who refuse to listen to a boundary. We have to be consistent even when they aren't because it is our boundary and it is our request. And we have to make sure that it is being honored by saying it again until people get it. You know, I got to say, I'm in my early 50s now, and it's only over the last few years that I've probably not been not been really dramatically affected by guilt. Like, I think a lot of times I was operating out of guilt. I realized that the guilt would inadvertently lead to resentment, and that was not healthy. Um, I was resenting someone then. I was maybe doing the thing they wanted me to do, but I was resenting them for, for doing it, which seemed to be the worst thing of all because it was bad for me. It was bad for them. That took a long time for me to... to um, get through. What's your advice to people in, to, to make them not feel guilty about enforcing their boundaries? Guilt is a symptom of you caring, you being concerned, you wanting to make sure that other folks are, are okay. And I don't want you to not want those things. Those things are all healthy. I want you to feel that and set your boundary. The more that you set the boundary, the less guilty you'll feel because you won't feel like you're doing a bad thing. I think Nedra's advice is incredibly important here. We need to be communicating clearly. We need to define our boundaries and we need to be firm about our needs with our partner. But what can we also do to get a little bit more love on the brain? Here are some tips from researcher Helen Fisher. Tip one, just try something new. Novelty, novelty, novelty. Do novel things together. Novelty drives up the dopamine system in the brain and can give you feelings of intense romantic love or sustain it. This is why vacations are so exciting, because it's so novel. Tip two, don't underestimate the power of touch. 
walk arm in arm, hold hands, uh, get rid of the couch and sit next to each other while you watch television, learn to at least start the evening sleeping in each other's arms, drives up the oxytocin system and can give you feelings of attachment. Tip three, learn how to heal a broken heart. Years and years ago, a guy broke up with me and I never could figure out why he left. And I finally said to myself, Helen, make it up. Make up a story so that you can then throw it out and bury it. And I did. So I do think that you've got to use the AA model, the addiction model. Get rid of the cards and letters. Don't call. Don't write. Don't show up. Go off to novel things with novel people. Stick with friends who really love you and move on. Tip four for those who are currently single. If you don't have a partner, get on the Internet. Get on the Internet. They are out there. But it does take some work. But you're working to find life's greatest prize. A mating partner is worth it. And tip five, how to celebrate Valentine's Day, even in a pandemic. If you're stuck at home, get all dressed up. Turn on some music and dance even if you don't know how to dance. Decide to play some games together. Cook something or buy something that is really special. Make it a special day. Love is special. Love keeps us alive. You know, it's weird. Even though we're all so wired and interconnected through our devices, it does seemingly feel harder than ever to really communicate and have a proper conversation. Recently, I've even gotten into the habit of texting and emailing things to Rebecca, even if we're in the same house, just so we can have a paper trail of what we've discussed. While it's actually helped us remember those things, I admit it's not the most romantic, which is why I'm so glad I got to talk to her like this again for the podcast. I would suggest you try and do the same thing, maybe not for a podcast, but just sit down with your partner and have a conversation across the table, eye to eye, no distractions. It will feel like a vacation, even if the two of us had to squeeze tightly into our basement closet for the recording. You know, I mean, it doesn't have to be so much a long journey as much as it is the time together without the like, interruptions or concerns or needs of, of other people interfering with that communication. That's exactly what we're doing. This podcast interview is like a trip. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's not the nicest uh, spot. I Just a walk down the stairs. Just a walk down the stairs. Very easy. You don't get the beautiful beach or anything, but you do get no distractions, real conversations, stuff like that. You know, I think that this is definitely magical. It's it's a beautiful thing that when we get to do this, who knows, they usually cut this all up and don't include any of the funny parts anyhow. But <laughs> Zoe, include Rebecca's funny parts this time. <laughs> That's okay. Now let us know if this episode resonated with you. Record your thoughts as a voice memo. Email them to asksanjay at cnn.com or give us a call, 470 470- and leave a message. We might even include them on an upcoming episode of the podcast. You know, recently we talked about how our brains perceive time. And philosopher Megan Sullivan shared her tips for mental time travel. Well, since then, we've heard from a lot of you, including from a teacher who's now using the technique in her acting class. Hi, Sanjay. My name is Renee. I love the time travel episode. 
today I have a teen high school acting class and we are going to experiment with time travel, um, mental time travel. We do some meditation, but I thought that was really specific to acting and also will be really nice for their minds and a good way to narrate in their own brains some of the stuff they've been going through and look back on some past happy experiences and, and looking forward to the future. So that was a great inspiration for my class today. And I just wanted to thank you for that. Renee, that is wonderful to hear. I'd love to know how the class went. And everyone else, please keep the messages coming. We love them. We listen to them. As you all know, Rebecca and I have three teen and tween girls. So next week, we're going to explore my life's biggest mystery, the teenage brain. You don't want to miss it. We'll be back Tuesday. Thanks for listening. Chasing Life is a production of CNN Audio. Megan Marcus is executive producer. Zoe Saunders is the senior producer. Our podcast is produced by Jordan Gaspore, Emily Liu, Xavier Lopez, Isuke Samuel, and Grace Walker. Our production assistant is Allison Park. Our intern is Eduardo Ocampo. Our medical writer, Andrea Kane. Tommy Bazarian is our engineer. And a special thanks to Ben Tinker and Amanda Seeley of CNN Health, as well as Ashley Lusk, Rafina Ahmad, and Courtney Coop from CNN Audio. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.